The title of today's sermon is Elder Rule. Elder Rule, subtitled God's Church, God's Way, Not the Mob Rule Way. God's Church, God's Way, Not the Mob Rule Way. When I was in Bible college, they taught me that there are many forms of church government. I read several books on church government, and it was, here are the plethora of forms, choose one. The professor did not say, the books he gave us did not say, thus saith the Lord. Choose this, or be in error, or sin, or worse, rebellion. Biblically speaking, God's church must be run must function God's way, not the mob rule way or some other ingenious way that we come up with, the corporate way, the chaotic way. There are lots of ways of doing church. And then there's God's way. And that's what we want. Now, you can have some level of success in a variety of ways, regardless of the fact that they're not the biblical way, that they're not God's way that they are an erroneous way. And I don't want to condemn churches or pastors that aren't doing it the biblical way, but I do want to bring the light of the Word upon the topic of the design of God's church and how God's church should function. And if we think that God has not spoken to that, we do err, not knowing the Scriptures. Do you think God really left the design of his church ambiguous? That's a pretty big deal to leave ambiguous. Do whatever you want. Hope it works out for you, said Jesus to his church. Really? I don't think so. And so elder rule, God's church, God's way, not the mob rule way. And typically it is elder rule or congregational rule, which I have in a very unflattering way termed mob rule. And I mean to be unflattering, not to be mean, but I mean to be unflattering because it ultimately is mob rule. It's not elder rule. And what we want is beneath the rule of Christ, not to be beneath the rule of he or she who has the loudest voice and can gather a group around them, a congregational group, congregation rule. But when he or she has the loudest voice, gathers a group around them, really it's mob rule, even if they don't bring the torches and the pitchforks. And so we want to be Christ church, Christ way, beneath Christ as the Lord of the church, the head of the church, seeing what he has commanded in his word regarding The structure of the church, how then should the church be structured? Where does the authority lie? Pastor John MacArthur of the Grace Community Church has written extensively on this, and they have summarized much of his writing in this statement. It says this, Biblically, the focal point of all church leadership is the elder. An elder is one of a plurality of biblically qualified men who jointly shepherd and oversee a local body of believers. The word translated elder is used nearly 20 times in Acts and the the epistles in reference to this unique group of leaders who have responsibility for overseeing the people of God. The office of elder. As numerous passages in the New Testament indicate, the words elder, presbyteros, 
overseer, episcopos, and pastor, poimen, all refer to the same office. Elder, overseer, pastor are all referring different facets of the same office, the same man. In other words, overseers and pastors are not distinct from elders. The terms are simply different ways of identifying the same people. The qualifications for an overseer, episcopos, which by the way is also translated at times bishop, bishop. There are no bishops in the sense of they have fancier robes and fancier hats, and so they're in charge of the elders, right? That's the Roman Catholic Church and a few others. There are bishops in the sense of pastors and overseers, but we typically don't call them bishops because today that would be confusing for many. They'd think we were Romish. So the qualifications for an overseer, an episcopos, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, and those of an elder, presbyteros, and Titus 1, 6-9 are unmistakably parallel. In fact, in Titus chapter 1, Paul uses both terms to refer to the same man. All three terms are used interchangeably in Acts 20. In verse 17, Paul assembles all the elders, the presbyteros of the church of Ephesus, to give them his farewell message. In verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopos, to shepherd, poimeno, the church of God. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 brings all three terms together as well. That will be our opening text in a few minutes. Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders, presbyteros among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd, poimeno, the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, episcopeo, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. The different terms then indicate various features of ministry, not varying levels of authority or separate offices, as some churches espouse. The consistent pattern throughout the New Testament is that each local body of believers is shepherded by a plurality of God-ordained elders. Simply stated, this is the only pattern for church leadership given in the New Testament. That should hold weight, saints. How then should we do church? Who should lead? We look to the Scriptures. And what do we find? That the Lord calls and establishes elders to lead. Nowhere in Scripture does one find a local assembly ruled by majority opinion or by a single pastor. The Apostle Paul left Titus in Crete and instructed him to, quote, appoint elders in every city, Titus 1.5. James instructed his readers to, quote, call for the elders of the church to pray for those who are sick, James 5, 14. When Paul and Barnabas were in Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, they, quote, appointed elders for them in every church, Acts 14, 23. And there wasn't a vote in any of those circumstances. In Paul's first epistle to Timothy, the apostle referred to the elders who rule well at the church at Ephesus, 1 Timothy 5, 17. You could also look to Acts 20, verse 17, where Paul addresses, quote, the elders of the church at Ephesus. The book of Acts indicates that there were elders at the church in Jerusalem. Acts eleven thirty, fifteen two, 15, 2, and 21, 18. Again and again, reference is made to a plurality of elders in each of the various churches. In fact, in every place in the New Testament where the term presbyteros, elder, is used, it is plural, except where the apostle John uses it of himself, in 2nd and 3rd John, and where Peter uses it of himself in 1 Peter 5.1. 1. 
Nowhere in the New Testament is there a reference to a one-pastor congregation. It may be that each elder in the city had a group of individual, had an individual group in which he had specific oversight, but the church was seen as one church and decisions were made by collective process in reference to the whole body of elders, not individual parts. In other passages, reference is made to a plurality of elders, even though the word presbyteros itself is not used. In the opening greeting of his epistle to the Philippians, Paul refers to the overseers, plural, episcopos, and deacons at the church of Philippi. In Acts 20, verse 28, Paul warned the elders of the church of Ephesus, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which God has made you overseers, plural, episcopos. The writer of the Hebrews called his readers to obey and submit to the leaders or elders who kept watch over their souls, Hebrews 13, 17. Paul exhorted his Thessalonian readers to appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, 1 Thessalonians 5.12, a clear reference to the overseers in the Thessalonian assembly. Much can be said for the benefits of leadership made up of a plurality of godly men. Their combined counsel and wisdom helps assure that decisions are not self-willed or self-serving to a single individual If there is division among the elders in making decisions, all the elders should study, pray, and seek the will of God together until a consensus is achieved. In this way, the unity and harmony that the Lord desires for the church will begin with those individuals he has appointed to shepherd his flock. As the apostolic era came to a close, the office of elder emerged as the highest level of local church leadership. Thus, it carried a great amount of responsibility. There was no higher court of appeal and no greater source to understand the mind and heart of God as revealed in scriptures with regard to the issues in the church. The primary responsibility of an elder is to serve as a manager and caretaker of the church, 1 Timothy 3.5. That involves a number of specific duties. As spiritual overseers of the flock, elders are to determine church policy, oversee the church, ordain others, rule, teach, and preach, exhort and refute, and act as shepherds setting the example for all. Those responsibilities put elders at the core of the New Testament's church work. Because of its heritage of democratic values and its long history of congregational church government, modern American evangelicalism often views the concept of elder rule with suspicion. The clear teaching of Scripture, however, demonstrates that the biblical norm for church leadership is a plurality of God-ordained elders, and only by following this biblical pattern will the church maximize its fruitfulness to the glory of God. And that is our goal, to be obedient to the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, who said, I have all authority in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make disciples. Disciples are followers of Christ. Baptize them. And teach them to obey all things that I've commanded. Teach them to obey all things Christ has commanded. Christ's church, found in the Holy Scriptures, is not a democracy. Most churches today, found on any given street, in whatever city you might live in, or or the countryside, are democracies. Where they vote in or vote out elders, where they vote in or vote out pastors, based on whether they like whatever decision he recently made, whatever sermon he recently preached, and certainly whatever person or persons he may have recently sought to church discipline. And 
many churches, elders are simply figureheads. They're that group of men who get over there and pray. They're the spiritual guys, but they have no actual power. It's like the monarchy in England. They have no actual power, no actual authority. The power lies in all these councils that are raised up by vote. It is, in effect, a mob rule carried out through a council rule. And if someone in the mob, if someone in the congregation rises up with enough influence, enough volume, then they can sway the church, often resulting in the splitting of a church or the dissolution of the church entirely all together. So regardless of pragmatic issues, regardless of what we think will work better, regardless of what we think will be prone to more error, what we do as followers of Jesus Christ is what Jesus Christ commands us to do. It's not an issue when it comes to evangelism. How then should we evangelize? What did Jesus say to do and what did Jesus do himself? You know the little bracelets and the hats and the t-shirts that say WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, for the most part, that's nonsense. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus command us to do? That's the question. We need new bracelets, hats, and t-shirts. What did Jesus do and say, follow me? in doing, and what did Jesus command us to do? That's really the issue. So when it comes to evangelism, it's not pragmatism. What what do you think will work? I don't know. What do you think will work? Well, I've seen this work. No, it's do what Jesus did and do what Jesus commanded us to do. When it comes to the issue of marriage, what do you think will work? One man, woman, and one woman for life? Well, that's what the Bible says to do, but you know, it's not working out so much today. So, you know, let's just hang out and fornicate and live together and see, you know, how that goes. And then maybe eventually we'll get married or not. And we'll just see. You know, we don't want to be bound too tightly to that that old dusty book called the Bible. Now, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to evangelism, we do what God says to do. When it comes to parenting, what do you think we should do? Should we give the child a choice? Is whether or not the child is a boy or a girl, a beast or a human being? What do you think we should do? Do we give the child a choice whether the child wants to obey or disobey, eat or not eat, go to bed or not go to bed, do schoolwork or not do schoolwork? Or do we do what the Lord says to do? And the word of mom, Proverbs, is law. Eat your peas. That's the law of mom. Thus the child eats the peas. Get out of bed. That's the law of mom. Thus the child gets out of bed. Mom passes laws all day long. And some of those laws are well established. They're not new laws. So the child's not shocked when the child breaks the law, the law of mom, that the child is held accountable and there are biblical repercussions. That's the biblical way. And so it's not up to us to reinvent parenthood, to reinvent marriage, to reinvent evangelism, and to reinvent the church of Jesus Christ. No. It's up to us to obey the Lord, to study to show ourselves approved, and to walk in the light of the Word. And the light of the Word is not congregational rule or any other form of rule. It's not democracy. It's theocracy. Christ is King. Christ is Lord, Kyrios, Master. It's His church. And thus we do it his way. And that's not a tyrant standing in the pulpit saying it. It's a man submitted to Christ the King and the Word of God. 
What saith the Lord? That's what we do. And so elder rule, God's church, God's way, not the mob rule way or any other way that we might creatively come up with, however well we might argue it. Look to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Here we have Peter. Peter, at this point, the mature apostle Peter, late in Peter's life and ministry. And he writes this, The elders, the presbyteros, who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And also, by the way, that would be a declaration of his apostlehood. A witness of the sufferings of Christ equals apostle. And also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd. So he's saying to the elders, verse 1, to elders, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. Poimain, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, episcopus, bishop, overseer, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords, the Greek here is katakiriu, that's a, like a, a cult-like level of control, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now let's break this down in reverse order. Let's start at the end and go back to the beginning. Verse 6, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's our universal call, that we would all be humble beneath God. Thus, whatever God says to do, we do. Teach them to deserve all things I have commanded, Matthew 28, 20, the last words of Jesus before he ascended on high. And so we want to be humble beneath the mighty hand of God together. Verse 5 there at the end says, God resists the proud because grace to the humble. We don't want to be opposed to God and we don't want God opposed to us. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We want to be humble beneath him. Verse 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. So verse 5 sometimes is used uh, by some folks with a democratic spirit within them. You might call it a, a rebel spirit, depending on the individual and how zealous they are. So they take verse 5 where it says, yes, and all of you be submissive to one another and say, look, it's universal submission. And these same folks tend to apply this to marriage, they tend to be egalitarian when it comes to men and women and marriage. And, and to say, that, you know, the, the husband might be the breadwinner, the wife might be the breadwinner, the husband might decide, the wife might decide, the husband may rule, the wife may rule. It's really interchangeable in given day and circumstances and whatnot. There's no actual set design of God. The whole wives submitting to your husbands is under the Lord thing. <laughs> Ridiculous. That's the egalitarian heart. And that is rebel. That is a rebel heart. That same mindset comes to the church with the same kind of arguments, arguing against the rule. And that word rule, boy, we rise up against that. We do as democratic-minded folks. But we are under the rule of Christ. We are. 
And hear me, if ever there was a rebel in your midst, I was he. <laughs> and yet, when Christ saved me, he became my Lord, my master, my king. And it's a glorious relationship. He's the master. I'm the doulos, a blood-bought slave. And so, I do what he says to do, generally speaking. Uh, I err, and that's called sin. But we must consciously engage ourselves to seeing what the Lord has commanded and then prayerfully going about obeying it and not looking to circumvent it by mishandling Scripture like Satan. Satan handled Scripture, you know. He just twisted it. So yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. That is a universal submission. Yes, in that we're iron sharpening iron, brothers and sisters loving each other, walking together, not always choosing to have the, the best seat, the best food, the best whatever, you know, winning the, the argument over who has the best team or best salad at the potluck or on and on it goes. There's so many ways we can just love each other and be humble and submit to one another to another in that capacity. But when it comes to leading the church, when it comes to the design of church polity, it is elder rule. Those are God's words and it's God's design. And then we go back to verse 1 there. The elders who are among you, I exhort, whom a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. How are elders going to effectively shepherd the flock of God if they're just hired guns? If they were called in by vote and they can be put out by vote at any given minute, they're trying to shepherd the flock of God. And sometimes sheep, they wander. Sometimes sheep, they bite each other. Sometimes sheep do far worse. And a shepherd has to take care of that sheep. You know, shepherds, literally speaking, at times had to break the leg of the sheep to teach the sheep not to wander. And then the shepherd would nurse that broke leg sheep back to health. And the sheep would learn the love of the shepherd and learn to stay near to the shepherd and not to wander off and get eaten by wolves. Let's follow that illustration of Poimain shepherd. So you've got the shepherd out amongst the sheep, you know, and this shepherd was voted in by these sheep and the sheep see the shepherd breaking a sheep's leg. What do you suppose is going to happen that day? The sheep are going to call a vote <laughs> and oust that shepherd. <laughs> And they're going to go find a kinder, gentler shepherd that'll do things their way, not Christ's way, whatever they want. That's why I say it's flock rule, right? It's mob rule. Bad shepherd, right? You broke Johnny Sheep's leg. Can't do that. You whacked my fellow sheep with the rod and brought it back into the flock. You can't do that. And so you effectually see how the, the hands of the shepherd would be tied in the illustration if indeed this flock of sheep voted him in, they would quickly vote him out. So the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partake of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords. And let me touch on that. There are those that say, look, you're being a lord. Anytime a shepherd, anytime an elder, anytime a pastor tries to exercise actual biblical authority for the glory of God and the blessing of the church as a whole and the individual sheep, a hue and cry comes out. Oh, you're trying to lord over us. No, I'm actually just trying to be a shepherd, be a pastor, trying to love God, love the flock as a whole, love you, the individual sheep, and 
come beneath the Word of God together and walk in good order. So we don't want to abuse this scripture, nor as being lords. The idea, as I've already said, is a cult-like level of controlling. I can give you several examples that I know of from a cult-like church in Iowa under a cult-like leader who abuses his role as shepherd, as elder, as pastor. And he does things like tell you whether or not you can buy a certain car, tell you whether or not you can buy a certain dog, tell you whether or not you can replace your old stove, refrigerator, and kitchen flooring and do a remodel on your kitchen, as if that was his business. Uh, The man is knee-deep in people's lives and ruling over them and the details of their lives in an unholy way. He even interjects himself into the marital-physical relationship to make sure that full marital intimacy is at its fullest. He has regular counseling sessions with the wives. That is perverted, wicked, and abusive. That's the kind of thing this is talking about. Not as lording it over them, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So that's 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. We must move with some speed because I want to give an overview of what the scriptures say regarding elder rule, God's church, God's way, not the mob rule way. So let's look to Hebrews 13, 7 through 9, and then verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 7, remember those who rule over you. Now this is the Lord saying to the church to remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Remember those who rule over you. And most churches today, if I showed up on a given Sunday as the guest preacher, and this was my text, and I read, remember those who rule over you, they would you know, squirrel up their face and think, what? Those who rule over us? What are you talking about? Who, are you? who brought in this guest preacher here? Those who rule over you. The problem is, is, unfortunately, many pastors are not biblically ruling. They're not biblically exercising much authority at all. And the church is unruly. Sin is running amok. There's adultery in the church. There's fornication in the church. There's homosexuality in the church. There's all sorts of sin running rampant in the church. And I speak from much experience over 20-some years of pastoring, knowing many pastors and churches where you can sit on the front pew of the church with your adulteress and all your kids from your various mixed marriages, and you're still married to your previous spouse. And that's all fine. No one's going to say a word. And if anyone does say a word, if the pastor dares say a word, a committee will be called and they'll try to throw him out. Terrible. And so remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. Now, how do they rule? They rule by speaking the word of God, by saying, thus saith the Lord. They preach the word and they preach it with authority. Again, sadly, many churches can't even tolerate that. That was kind of a preachy message. And you'll hear preachers even, preachers even, saying, I don't mean to be preachy here. Hear me! I mean to be preachy! Why? Because the Lord says, preach the word, whether what? In season or out of season? Meaning, whether the sheep are happy to receive the word, or whether they're kind of rebellious and they don't really want it. 
Preach the word, whether in season or out of season. That's my job. My job is to please the Lord, not the sheep of the Lord's fold. If the sheep of the Lord's fold are pleased by the word of God, being authoritatively brought to them with not my authority, but God's authority, then praise God. But I'm not preaching for the applause of the sheep of the Lord's fold or the approval. My job is to preach for the glory of God and the approval of God that we all would come beneath God and walk in the light of His Word. It's not to say, here's the Word of God, take it or leave it, however you feel today. Here's the Word of God. Take it and leave off of anything that would be against it. That's preaching. Preach the Word. That's the command. That's what pastors do. Remember those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you. They don't just preach it, they counsel it. They correct with it. The word of God is useful for what? Teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. I do apologize. I think that's NIV. That was the first version I memorized in that text. So teach, teaching, doctrine, I think the New King James says, NAS says. It's useful for doctrine, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, we want things to be light. We want the sermon to be light. We want the pastor's conversations to be light. Any counseling, keep it light. Keep it friendly. The Word of God is useful for what? Doctrine. That's not light. That's thus saith the Lord. This is the truth. This is the theology. Everything that's contrary to that is either error or even heresy. Doctrine, rebuke, correction. Well, those aren't positive words. Mark those out of my Bible. Rebuke and correction. If we're not going to get beneath the Lord, beneath righteousness, beneath His commands, if we're going to walk in sin, then either rebuke or correction or do. Correction, and yet if we double down and press on in sin, now rebuke. Hey, 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 you know that's wrong. In fact, we've even discussed how that's wrong. We've looked at the light of word. That's wrong. It's clear. It's undeniable. And yet you're persisting in it so that the temperature's turned up a little bit. You move from correction to rebuke. And then training in righteousness. That's unrighteous. This is righteous. Training in righteousness. Right now, I'm training in righteousness. Congregation rule, it's unrighteous. Elder rule, righteous. Why? Thus saith the Lord. That's why. I don't like the word rule. Irrelevant. Some pastor might rule wrongly. Ultimately, still irrelevant. Yes, he might. And it's up to the other elders to correct that. At the end of the day, if the other elders won't correct that, then ultimately the choice then is upon the sheep of the Lord's fold to find elders who are actually true elders beneath Christ, walking in the light of the word. So they vote with their feet. The the sheep go off to find a true church with true under-shepherds who are truly beneath Christ. But there's not a vote that's nowhere in the word of God. It's not a democracy. Thus saith the Lord. And so, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a weird statement just thrown in there, isn't it? You think contextually it might have connection? Yes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, this hasn't changed. Hey, we're in a modern world. The idea of a pastor having rule, real authority, that just doesn't fit our modern democratic sensitivities. 
And so we're going to do it differently. You mean you're going to do it wrongly. You're going to do it rebelliously. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. That's the context here. So remember those who rule over you have spoken the word of God to you whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same today or yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, including church polity, including God's design for God's church, Christ's design for Christ's church. Verse 17, obey those who rule over you. Hebrews 13, verse 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. There are those in verse 7 who say, well, rule doesn't really mean rule. And they, whew, they have fancy ways of explaining how rule doesn't mean rule. We're going to reinterpret the word of God against its clear meaning because we're just not comfortable with that. We just don't like that. And that's not actually an interpretation. That's a, I don't believe that, I don't like that, I'm going to say it means something it doesn't mean. That's not an interpretation. Hebrews 13, 17, obey those who rule over you. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. There's no way around it being an actual rule where obedience is called, where submission is called and connected to it. And then this beautiful statement, for they watch out for your souls is those who must give an account. That's their job, to watch over the souls of the sheep of the Lord's fold. And they will give an account to God for that. And then this final admonition here, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. In other words, don't rebel against it. Don't oppose them. Don't try to vote them out. Don't get the pitchforks and the torches. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable profitable for you. Now, again, if we start collecting up W-2s and telling you what car you can buy or not buy, what room your house you can remodel or not remodel, and how you ought to go about your marital relations in the most intimate way, that is cultic abuse of pastoral authority. And you should run from that. Run from that. But don't run from biblical churches with biblical pastors carrying out biblical authority, counseling, correcting, teaching, preaching, rebuking, training with the Word of God. No, run to that. Run to that. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And then we move into 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Again, we've got to be fairly quick here. Got a lot to get to. But this is the text we commonly think of when we think of elder qualifications. And 1 Timothy is what kind of epistle? What kind of book? It's a pastoral epistle. This is how we do church. This is what a pastor is. 1 Timothy. The Apostle Paul writing to young pastor Timothy, inspired of the Holy Spirit, establishing what the church is and how we do church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires a position of a bishop, episkopos, bishop or overseer, 
He desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, a husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well. That word keeps coming up. Rules his own house well. Well, in our democratic Christian world, we don't even like that. We don't like the idea of a man ruling his own house. The egalitarian spirit comes out in light of such a concept as that. And it's not a concept, it's a command. It's the design of God for the home. One who rules his house well. Again, not as some petty tyrant, but as a loving under-shepherd of his home. Loving his wife as Christ loved the church sacrificially, right? Christ died for the church. Christ loved the church. Christ provided everything the church needs. And Christ has gone to prepare a home, an eternal home for his church. And Christ is coming again for his church. But he is the head of his church. So one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Again, sermons could be preached out of that text. Sermons. We're just touching on hitting the high points. The high points, elders are to be called, and the elders... One of the qualifications they have to, twice over, it speaks to them ruling their own household well. Why? Because if they can't rule their own house well, how are they going to rule in the house of God? If they don't have that strength of character, that fortitude, that spine to say, this is true, this is right, that's wrong, we can't go there, we're going to go there, over my dead body, those kind of things. If they can't do that in the home with their children, then how are they going to do that with the children of God, the sheep of the Lord's fold, who at times need that kind of instruction? Again, the word of the Lord is useful for what? Teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. God said it's useful for those things. How dare we neglect those things? 1 Timothy chapter 5 Verse 17, again, pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy 5, 17, just so you know I wasn't extrapolating from 1 Timothy 3, saying, look, if it says he rules his own house, that's in the context of thus he can rule the church well. No, it's not extrapolated. 1 Timothy 5, 17 says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. The elders are not ruling according to the dictates of their own heart. Thus saith the pastor... Though the elders are ruling according to the dictate of God, thus saith the Lord. They labor in the word. Thus saith the Lord. And they're walking in the light of the word. Now when it's thus saith the Lord, two or three or four steps removed, right? Now we're getting onto some shaky ground. Thus saith the Lord. Here's the chapter. Here's the verse. Here's the black and white truth of the Lord. That's a good place to be. Now there will be some applications that, that aren't, written out clearly in the scriptures, we find you know, new and ingenious ways to sin. And the word of God speaks to all sin. It just may not speak to that particular facet of sin explicitly, but it has application nevertheless. 
So they let the elders who rule well, First Timothy five seventeen, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses, and those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, the rest may also fear. I said earlier, and the scriptures have shown us, that elders call elders. Elders recognize God's call on a man's life and God qualifying him, and the elders call and ordain an elder into the office and ministry of the elder. Elders also correct elders, call them to graciously step down if their life has fallen out of order or if it's a different level of sin or unrepentant sin of some sort, the obvious one, the pastor commits adultery, there is a rebuke and a removal to what end? That the rest may also fear. Verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, the rest may also fear. They are sinning. It's not some disqualifying issue. Yes, a sin issue, even that when confronted, they say, yes, you're right. I repent. I need to step down. And yes, you do need to step down. It's not that kind of an issue. It's that they're sinning. They're unrepentant. They're pressing on. They're to be put out of the pastorate, put out of the the office of elder, and rebuked, that the rest may also fear. Even think of that in most churches. How often are elders that fall, and I know of some churches right around here where elders fell in adultery, they fell in fornication, and they just were quietly removed, just quietly stepped aside, and often got severance packages and whatnot. I know of an elder who embezzled, he embezzled ruthlessly for years. And when the church found out, they gave him a severance package. It's madness. So again, 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, meaning provided for by the church to free them like oxen to be laboring in the Lord's field. You know, unmuzzle that ox. The labor is worthy of his wages. So Titus, Titus, chapter 1, verses 4 and following we find again that elders are called to lead, called to exercise authority, called to recognize and call other elders. Titus chapter 1, verse 4, To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And then he goes into the elder qualifications. So the Apostle Paul left Titus in Crete that he should set in order, set Christ's church in order. The Apostle Paul had come through, he'd preached the gospel. The Lord was pleased to raise the dead, pleased to bring men and women to repentance and faith in Christ, raise up a church, and yet it needs elders because a group of sheep without a shepherd is not a church. Shepherd and sheep constitute a church. And so... For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Elders, appoint elders. That's what the scripture clearly says. Now, those with a democratic mindset come to the scriptures and just read between the lines, add stuff in and say, well, you see what was going on there is they voted and then Titus recognized who they voted in. Really? That's what it says? No, it doesn't say that at all. That's what's called nonsense. It's nowhere in the scriptures. That just make it up as you go. You could really say, actually, what they did is they got a message from aliens 
And then Titus recognized the message from the aliens and installed the people that the aliens said should be the elders. You could just as easily say that. That's equally nonsensical. The scriptures are clear. When the scriptures are clear, take them for what they say. Don't find a way to go around them. Especially when your culture is compelling you to go around them or your own sinful nature is compelling you to go around them. I'll give you another example currently of doing that. There are people all around us now who call themselves Christians who have decided that the Holy Spirit's doing a new thing. Do you know the new thing the Holy Spirit's doing? He is saving sinners' souls, particular sinners, homosexuals, lesbians, transgenders, without repentance. Without repentance. They don't need to repent. It's not sin anymore. All they need to do is profess faith in Jesus Christ and they're saved. Isn't that wonderful news? This new thing the Holy Spirit is doing. And this testimony is a growing testimony all around us. Because if you can't beat them, join them. Join them. Just redefine what Christianity is. Redefine what being a Christian is. Redefine what salvation is. Jesus said, Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. But that whole repent part, no, 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 no. That doesn't apply to homosexuality. Of course not. That's who they are. That's who God made them to be. That is the growing position of the evangelical, Baptist, Reformed, whatever flag they're flying, of a rebel church out there because they're capitulating with the culture. So you can bring your culture, your wicked rebel culture to the Word of God and make the Word of God say whatever you want. Or you can actually read the page and see what God hath said and learn to observe what He's commanded and not abuse the Scriptures, twisting them like Satan. So, for this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. I don't have time to unpack it all, but let's get to verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped. They're insubordinate against God, against God's design for church, against righteousness, and their mouths must be stopped. Who's going to stop their mouths? Congregational vote, of course. No, the elders that God has called that Titus recognized and Titus ordained in a real position of authority that they might rule in Christ's church beneath Christ and say, hey, that's out of order. That is insubordinate. And that's not going to fly here. Their mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. We've had people come through the door teaching things which they ought not for dishonest gain of some sort or another, and we've had to stop their mouths. And they go back out the door. And that's fine. They don't belong in Christ's church when they come with a a message that is contrary to Christ. They don't belong here. A man showed up. You remember him, some of you. He showed up Sunday morning. He was sitting outside on his own. Didn't want to talk to any of you. Didn't want to talk to me. He's sitting out there reading his morning paper. Nice sunny day in the summer. That's fine. A little different, but fine. Great. He comes into the service and the service starts. I think he was a little late. Okay, sure. You know, he's finishing up the morning paper. He makes it through about half the sermon and he leaves. Okay, sure. And then he's there after the service. Now he's got shorts on. Okay, sure, whatever. That's different. Very casual about the whole thing. And he wants to talk to me afterwards. So I see, you know, the the flock out the door, spend some time with the saints. And then I I sit down with him in the West Room there. And he, he says, you know, it's your lucky day, basically. 
God's brought me here to help you out. I've listened to your sermon there. I've, I've assessed the church here in my time here. And uh, I know everything this church needs and what you need. And see there, that office, I'll set up there. And for a low, low fee, I'll straighten all you out. It was like something out of Dr. Seuss. And he had a star machine. He was going to put a star in each of your chests, shuffle you through there. It was madness. And what he was was a, an arrogant psychologist who professed to be a Christian. And when I asked him, I said, sir, where do you go to church? Where are you a member? And he said, oh, I have transcended the need to attend church. And I said, oh, really? Well, you've transcended the need to hear another word from me then. <laughs> you need to repent. Here's your final word. Repent, confess Christ as Lord, and be saved. And no, you'll not be counseling anyone here. You'll not have an office there next to mine. It will not be funneling folks through. That's madness. That's an example of someone who came in, insubordinate, whose mouth needed to be stopped. And we stopped it right quick in a jiffy. And out the door he went. You know how he left? I said, sir, you're not a Christian. You're a rebel against Christ. And you're coming to turn Christ's saints against him. Not only will you not have an office here or ministry here, I will protect the flock from you. And listen, you don't belong in Christ's church anywhere until you repent and confess Christ as Lord. No Christian has transcended church. Get beneath Christ. Romans 10.9. He was furious. He could hardly speak. He left all flustered and angry and telling me, I missed out on a great opportunity <laughs> and I've kept you from it too. <laughs> so if you feel like you missed out, you can see me afterwards. Many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for dishonest gain. Low, low price. He would have set up shop there. Low, low price. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. Well, how does a hired gun under the you know, weekly vote out, vote in, vote you can stay, pressure, how does he rebuke anyone sharply? Woo, better walk carefully on those eggshells. Rebuke them sharply. Rebuke them sharply, says the word of God that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables or commandments of men who turn from the truth. If we look to the book of Acts, we see the church on the move. We see the church being the church that God called it to be. In Acts 14.21, we see Paul appointing elders in every church. Acts 14.21, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They did not call for a vote. They, whom God called, who God appointed, saw, recognized who God had called, and they, in turn, appointed them. Can corruption come into that? Absolutely, it can. Corruption can come into anything man is involved in. But that's God's design. Can corruption come into congregational rule and congregational vote on the color of the carpet, on every ministry, on every message that's preached or taught? Yeah, corruption can come in there too. And it does. It does. 
So regardless of pragmatism, thus saith the Lord, that's what we do. But let's think pragmatically just for a minute. No matter what size the church is, 15, 25, 55, 105, 1,055, corruption walks through the door with each individual to some level or another in varying degrees. However big that elder body is, there's also potential for corruption. I prefer the smaller number, the less potential for corruption. And when you get a corrupt individual in a congregation that is committed to congregational rule, that corrupt individual typically sways a great crowd and you have suddenly this division, this cancer in the body. Let me give you an example. There was a big split. I say a big split. It was a minor split in a big church, but it involved many people. Do you know what it was over? Macintosh versus IBM. Yeah. And it was bitter and ugly because they were misusing the Lord's resources. They were acting foolishly, clearly lacked wisdom because they were embracing the IBM. That's how wild it gets at times. We don't want to open the door to that madness on a pragmatic level. Pragmatism aside, thus saith the Lord. That's where we want to go. What God says, we do. Whether it's marriage, whether it's parenting, whether it's local church polity, whether it's evangelism, whether it's male and female, he created them. If God says it, that's the truth. If God commands it, that's what we do. Pragmatism aside, what about aside? Paul and those with him appointed elders in every church. In Acts 20, verses 17 to 31, we find the apostle Paul calling the elders, not the congregations, not the duly democratically elected church board, he called the elders in Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And he warned those elders about wolves and sheep's clothing who will come from without and seek to ravage the Lord's flock. And you as elders need to stand and protect Christ's flock with authority, with strength and courage. Verse 28, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Vote doesn't make them overseers. The Holy Spirit makes them overseers and other overseers recognize that the Holy Spirit has made them an overseer and ordain them as such. Therefore take heed to yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own Blood, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. We had a man who came in, and for two years he was with us, and he was a brother, and he was dear, and he was manly. He's everything I like in a man. He was military. He was kind. He was strong. He was adventurous. He loved the Word of God. He stood by me on the streets in many evangelistic battles. And after two years, he invited all the men of the church to his home, and his father from out of town came to visit. And his father had this big box. And in that big box was paper after paper written to assault the deity of Jesus Christ. And they were seeking to teach the men of the church that Jesus Christ is not God. That man dwelt with us for two years, won our hearts, and then tried to turn the church against Christ. That's what the scriptures are talking about. And so what did we do? 
Well, the men that were there immediately contacted me and Elder Dale and I, and I think Derek too, sat down with this man. His name is John. I love him still. As an American, as a man, I still appreciate so much about him. As a Christian, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's no Christian at all. He's incredibly dangerous. That man wept as we brought the word of the Lord graciously to bear upon him, but authoritatively saying, Christ is Lord. Christ is God in flesh. Scripture after scripture showing it, pleading with him to repent of his rejection of the one true Christ. And assuring him, unless he repents, he will perish as an idolater following a false God and a false Christ. And warning him that his father is leading him to hell with all his astute writings, intellectually sounding arguments, denying the deity of Christ. He left not arrogant and angry at us. He left broken but stubborn in his heresy. And that was a serious assault on the body of Christ. But praise God. You are genuine saints. And praise God, by His grace, we are genuine elders. So we were able to weather that and put out that man for the protection of the body. And sadly, he is still unrepentant. So these things happen. They come from without, they come from within, and it's the elder's job to protect the flock with authority. So I'd love to go to Acts 21, 15 through 25 and show you how the apostle Paul comes before the elders who then tell him what to do. Verse 23, therefore, do what we tell you, says Elder James and the elders with him. I'd love to tell you about that, but I don't have time. I'd love to tell you about James chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, where the elders, not the congregation, not the church board, where the elders are called to come and lay hands on and pray over the sick anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of the faith will save the sick. I'd love to go into those details, but I don't have the time. I want to close with the words of another man, Pastor Dan Dumas, who was the assistant pastor to Dr. Steve Lawson. Dan Dumas said this, Where did elder rule originate? A better question is, where did the rule that the sheep lead the shepherds originate? Church government is not up for grabs. The motive for church government is to organize and motivate the people. The reason it matters is because congregationalism is not biblical. Many examples have been given where the word church is singular and where elders and overseers are listed in a plural format. Even Polycarp is on record telling congregations to submit to their elders. Elder rule is both biblical and historical. That's cutting his article short significantly. One other writer said this, many modern churches employ what is known as congregational rule as a form of government. I'm familiar with the arguments offered by those who believe that congregations should elect their elders, but thus far I'm unconvinced of their position. Without engaging in a lengthy dissertation, let me state briefly why, historically, biblically, and rationally, if congregational rule was a principle taught to the New Testament church, we should expect to find it practiced by congregations in the first three centuries. However, Mention of congregations electing their elders was completely absent in church history for the first 1,500 years. All extra-biblical sources, all extra-biblical sources, particularly the early fathers, indicate that the early church saw their elders appointed by others in spiritual authority. Congregations picked their own deacons but left the selection of elders to those already in spiritual authority. According to the historical record, congregational rule dates not to the first century, but to the 16th century. In fact, the historical account of church life 
are so clear that few, if any, dispute the record. The first Christians to believe they had the authority to elect their spiritual leaders were the Anabaptists in England in the middle of the 1500s. They had witnessed the authoritarian rule of the Catholic Church and had experienced firsthand the abuse of authority of the Church of England, so decided they would form fellowships which would limit opportunities for abuse of power. That's called pragmatism. Giving authority to congregation to the congregation to elect leaders was the way they solved this. As others broke off with the Church of England, they too tried this new form of church government. Consequently, many of the early American colonists started churches which elected their leaders. The style of government was employed by so many modern churches find its roots in the practices of the Anabaptists. Some would suggest that the Anabaptists must have been like other reformers and were merely returning to what was properly biblical. But if that were so, it would mean that the entire early church forsook proper practice while the apostles were still alive. If I had never heard of congregational rule and merely went to the scriptures to discover how elders were selected, I would conclude that Paul and Barnabas drew upon their spiritual insights and chose the elders upon which they laid hands and appointed to office, as Acts 14.23 says. Titus was instructed by Paul to do the same, as we have seen in Titus 1.5. Based on the English as well as the Greek, I would conclude it meant that they personally selected them, not ratified the selection of the congregation. I understand the Baptist opinion that Paul and Barnabas must have appointed to office the church leaders already elected by the congregation, but it appears that they are reading into the text a modern view of church government. I am familiar with their arguments, but I could not draw their same conclusions were I merely reading the text without their frame of reference, especially in light of God's established patterns of authority. If God intended in the church that followers elect the ones who would lead them, it would not have followed the pattern of authority that he previously established in Scripture. Moses selected the men who assisted him. The civil government of Israel did not consist of individuals elected by popular vote, and priests were not elected to the priesthood. In the hierarchy of the family, leadership was not a democratic effort. Heads were solely responsible for their leadership, i.e. Adam listened to Eve's input, but he alone was responsible for his decision to eat the fruit, and he alone was the one who was said to have introduced sin to the world, as we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. When God came to the garden, he called for Adam. He was the head. He was supposed to protect Eve. He failed. The New Testament church itself was established by apostles who had been chosen for their office, not elected to the position. And when the apostles sought to replace Judas, they did not have a vote involving all the other disciples, but they, made, they alone made the selection. So when we read that the elders and the congregations were appointed by those in spiritual authority, it would follow that they were personally selected by them. The men mentioned in Acts 6, 1-6 were chosen by their fellow congregation members were selected to administrate a meal ministry, not assume positions of spiritual oversight. In fact, the apostles specifically distinguished between the lesser practical duty of what they called, quote, waiting on tables and their own spiritual leadership duties. To suggest God intended that the New Testament congregations have the custom of electing their spiritual leaders would be a convolution of authority unmatched by any other authority structure in the Bible. It does not even follow logically that God would plan for the followers to have authority over those who would lead them. In that scenario, leaders would have no real authority to lead. The followers who put them into office would have it. The congregation effectively becomes the boss who dictates to their employee his duties and limits. The pastor becomes a hired gun. 
This theology, contrary to Hebrews 13, 17, says that the leader must obey his followers or they will remove him from office. In fact, in the arrangement, since the followers are in charge, it becomes their duty to evaluate and discuss amongst themselves the job done by their leaders week to week. What the Bible calls slander, gossip, and divisiveness would merely be a job review. Such authority granted to members in the last few centuries has given way to the favorite Sunday lunch in congregational rural churches, quote, roast the preacher. Sadly, gossip, divisiveness, and splits are often synonymous with congregational rural churches. To propose that congregations have authority over their leaders would contradict Paul's admonition to Pastor Timothy about leaders accused of sin. It's precisely because the congregation did not have authority over its leaders that Timothy, not the congregation, was instructed to handle the evaluation and dis- discipline of his fellow leaders, as we saw in 1 Timothy 5, 19-20. Scripture makes it clear that elders rule over Hegeomai, the flock, Hebrews 13, 7, 17, and 24. Is it logical to suggest that those who are to be ruled over actually have authority over the ones who have authority over them? That convolutes Hebrews 13.7. Remember those who rule over you. Hebrews 13.17. Obey those who rule over you. And Hebrews 13.24. Greet all those who rule over you. Dear saints, we must be God's church, God's way, the elder rule way, not the congregational rule way, which so often results in the mob rule way. There we stand as a fellowship of 116 churches. There we stand as the Portland 116 Bible Church, firmly, both feet planted on the Word of God, beneath Jesus Christ, our Lord and our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the light of your Word so clear. May we happily receive it and walk therein. May elders not abuse their office, but exercise it graciously, lovingly, with strength and with courage, walking to the light of the word, truly able to say through your spirit, follow me as I follow Christ. Lord, let us walk together, iron sharpening iron, to your glory as your church, your way. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.